Lord, show us wonderful things from your word. We ask for clarity. We ask for understanding. We ask, Lord, that you would give us a heart to desire the things we're going to see in Paul's prayer for the Philippians, that we would desire to see those things in our life, and that we would actively pray for those things in our brothers' and sisters' lives. In Jesus' name, amen. When the Apostle Paul picked up his pen to write the epistle to the Philippians, he was in chains in a Roman prison. During the same imprisonment, he also wrote letters to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, and to Philemon, as well as the epistle to the Philippians. And as Paul put his pen to parchment, he wasn't thinking about his own suffering, interestingly enough. Although he was going through suffering, but he wasn't thinking about that. Rather, he was thinking about the Christians that he loved in Philippi. We saw this last week, but in verse 3, he says that he thanks God and all his remembrance of them. In verse 4, he says that he's always offering prayer with joy and his every prayer for them. In verse 7, he says, It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. And then in verse 8, he says, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he's constantly thanking God for them, he's praying for them, he has them in his heart, and he longs for them, and he longs to be with them again. He had a really special and close relationship to this church. Amongst all the churches that he planted, this seems to be the church that he had that closest of relationships with. No other church that he planted was so faithful and generous to support Paul in his ministry. They sent Paul gifts more than once. Paul was in prison in Rome and they actually sent one of their own number, Epaphroditus, all the way from Philippi to Rome, which would have taken a long time to travel. The only options there are maybe ride a camel or a donkey or go by boat or walk. You know, there was no air travel, there's no cars. So it would take a long time to get from Philippi to Rome. They sent one of their numbers with a special gift to minister to Paul in Rome. Epaphroditus got very sick and almost died. He recovered. Paul sent him back with this letter and, and his well wishes and his love so Epaphroditus could share that with the Philippian church. So we see Paul's love for the Philippians. And in verses 9 through 11, we're going to see the prayer that he prayed for them. We know that he constantly thanked God for them and that he, they were always on his heart and he was always praying for them. But what exactly did he pray when he thought about them? Well, we, we find out in verses 9 through 11. We get the content of Paul's prayer. And in short, this is what he prayed. That they would grow in godliness. Growth in godliness. Spiritual growth is what he desired for the church at Philippi. There are six things that he brings up in verses 9 through 11. Love, knowledge, discernment, sincerity, blamelessness, and fruit. Those are the six areas that he's praying would become experientially a part of their Christian life. That God would build and do these things in their hearts and lives. So I want to look at those six things with, with you this morning. First of all, love. He says in verse 9, And this I pray, well, what do you pray, Paul? That your love may abound still more and more. Your love. Now, 
when Paul prayed for them that they would experience love, he's not praying that they would start to love. He says, I pray that your love would abound. In other words, they already had some love. They possessed some love already. Your love would abound still more and more. I believe to, to be converted, there's always going to be at least some measure of love in a new Christian's life. Uh, from the book of Ephesians, we get that idea. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes to them in verse 15, and he says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, don't cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So Paul is saying the two hallmarks of a genuine Christian were found in you. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints. If there's no faith and if there's no love, there's no true conversion. Now that doesn't mean that you experience love and faith in their fullness when you're converted. No, because he says here, I want it to grow. I want it to abound still more and more. But at least there's going to be some faith some genuine saving faith and there's going to be some genuine love in the heart of a Christian. Now let's remember what true love is. It's not mushy sentimentalism. Uh, biblical love is a self-sacrificial determination to do another good. That's the kind of love God exercised towards us when we were in our sin. God so loved the world that He gave it was a self-sacrificial determination to do us good through the gospel. And so their love was not like a seed. It was more like a seedling. A seed has the potential of life in it, but you don't actually see any evidence of life sprouting from that seed yet. But a seedling, you can see it. You can see the little tiny roots starting to go down. You can see maybe one or two buds and maybe the start of a leaf. You see evidence of life there. And there was evidence of love within the Philippian church. So, I believe a, a very good case can be made that love is the highest grace in the Christian's life. You think about some of the graces of the Christian. Faith would be one, hope would be one, and love would be another. But if you think about those, faith, hope, and love, do you remember that triad <laughs> from 1 Corinthians 13? Paul says, and now these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So it's at the pinnacle of the work of God and the life of a Christian. Love is. Paul says in Colossians 3.14, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's what the church needs. If we're fractured and divided, we need the love of God. Love for one another, the supernatural love that God puts in the heart of a Christian. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another. So do you see how they, they mention when they talk about love beyond all these things? Above all. That's how they speak about it. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So love is at the pinnacle of all these Christian graces and fruits. And thankfully, it exists in some measure in every true child of God. So Paul says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. So Paul's happy that they possessed love for one another, but he wants that love to deepen and to grow and to abound and to flourish. The idea is of a, 
a glass of water being filled up to the top where it starts overflowing. So it's abounding still more and more. And he wants in our lives, our love, not to be static, but he wants our love for one another here in this church to abound and to grow and to see new measures of love coming forth from our lives. We shouldn't be content that we have some love in our lives. We should want our love to be growing and deepening and, and expressing itself in new ways towards one another. And that's what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 5 he says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's the very last grace that Paul mentions in this long list of seven or eight things? It's love. And he says, if these qualities, love including all the other ones that he mentions like faith, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, all of those other ones, but if they're increasing, he says you're not going to be unfruitful and you're not going to be useless you want to be a useful Christian? Do you want to be a fruitful Christian? Then we need to desire that these graces are abounding and increasing in our life. That we're, we're going from grace to glory in the Christian life. We see some development. We see the Lord working in us. And if we don't see that work, we should be troubled. We should go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, what's wrong with me? What, it, point out the sin that's blocking this work of your spirit in my life that I want my love to abound still more and more. So think of love in the life of a Christian as like a little seedling. Think of a little tomato plant. You've probably all seen those little seedlings you get. Instead of planting this tomato seed, you get the little plant because it's easier to get the thing to grow than planting the seeds, right? And you take that seedling and you put it into the ground and you water it every day. You put some fertilizer around it. You put one of those metal cone things so that when it grows up it's got support, right? and you make sure it's got plenty of sunshine you do everything you can to promote the growth and that's what we should be doing in our own spiritual life are we doing everything we can to put ourselves in a place to promote spiritual growth and an increase of love for the brethren and isn't that what you want deep down don't you want to be a fruitful loving believer that's growing in the grace of God that's what God wants for you we know that because Paul, an inspired apostle, prayed for them, and I have to believe that the prayer that he prayed for them was according to the will of God. So if, if that's true, then it's the will of God that our love would abound still more and more. Okay, secondly, he prays for knowledge. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. Real knowledge. The word that he uses there in the Greek is epignosis. And the word occurs 20 times in our New Testament. And every single time it refers to knowledge about God or the will of God or the ways of God. It's a word related to God and, and understanding Him and His ways. Um, 
Just to give you an example of how the word is used in other places, in Ephesians 1.17, Paul says that he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. The knowledge of God. And the word he uses is epignosis, for knowledge. And then Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, he, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So he mentions in verse 9, the knowledge of God's will, and verse 10, the knowledge of God. Now remember that both Ephesians and Colossians were written during this same imprisonment. And in the very first chapter of both of those letters, when Paul prays for them, he prays for epignosis, knowledge. Knowledge of God and knowledge of the will of God. Therefore, when we come to Philippians, which was another letter written during the same time, and Paul prays for them in the first chapter and prays for knowledge, I think we're safe to assume that he's praying that they would have a deeper knowledge of God and the, the ways of God, the will of God. So that's what the Lord wants for us. He wants us to go deeper in our knowledge of God. That was really my heart's desire when we did our last study on the attributes of God. I wanted, not, not just for you, I did want you to grow in that, but I wanted to grow in that myself. I wanted to know God better. And I realized, thinking back on it, that there's a couple of ways that we can grow in the knowledge of God. One is intellectually, and the Word of God is essential because that's the only true standard that we have to know God is His Word. So there's an intellectual knowledge of God, according to our understanding, there's also a relational knowledge of God that we need. And a relational knowledge of God needs to be experienced through relationship, through communing with God, meaning spending time in prayer with God, spending time in worship of God, walking with the Lord, experiencing Him interact with you, answering the prayers that you have prayed, seeing His hand in your life. When you are facing a time of difficulty or struggle or hardship, experiencing the joy of the Lord in those trials. You're, you're growing in a relational understanding and knowledge of God as you see how He can work within your life as you have this communion and relationship with Him. So both are essential. The, the intellectual knowledge of God and the relational knowledge as you develop that, that intercourse with the Lord, that relationship with Him. The third thing Paul prays for them is discernment. He says, in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Now, notice that discernment in the Christian life is linked with knowledge. He wants them to abound in love still more and more in, this is the, sort of the, the planter box that the love will grow in, in real knowledge and coupled together with all discernment. The more knowledge we have of God, the more discerning we can be in our Christian life. The more discernment we can exercise. But... 
What did Paul exactly mean by discernment? He prayed that they would have all discernment. I think he answers that in the very next phrase. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. I believe discernment is the ability to discern the things that are excellent. Now it doesn't take a lot of discernment to decide between what's good and bad. Even an unbeliever can usually tell the difference between what's good and what's bad. But it does take discernment for a Christian to be able to choose what is excellent over what is good. Or what is best over what is good. Sometimes that's not so easy. So discernment is being able to approve of and make conscious choices about what is excellent in your life. Um, there may be a lot of things in the Christian life that are not exactly sin. You might just look at them as being neutral things. But a discernment would be the ability to approve the things that are excellent, not just the things that are neutral. Let me try to give you a couple of examples. You maybe have the option of binging on TV or Netflix or YouTube videos or something like that or you have the option of spending time in communion with God taking a prayer walk opening up your word and letting the Holy Spirit speak to you maybe it's going out intentionally to spread the gospel to other people um, meeting with a Christian friend to have Christian fellowship so presented with two different options do you have the discernment to choose that which is excellent over that which is okay so that's discernment. Or let's talk about the option of spending your Sunday on the lake or at the beach or gathering with God's people to worship together and to edify one another. What's the excellent choice there? The one with discernment will choose the excellent option. Or maybe it's getting together with an unsaved non-Christian friend that you enjoy being with. Maybe it's a family member and just visiting about the things of life, mundane matters, that would be one option. But perhaps if we exercised real discernment, we would pray about and look for an opportunity to discuss deeper matters, matters of the soul, sharing Christ and maybe something of your testimony of what the Lord has done in your life. That would be even a more excellent option than the first. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says that we need to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, so he mentions an encumbrance and sin. We're to lay aside both of those. The encumbrance is a weight and then you've got this sin. Lay those aside, he says, so that you can run the race that's set before you. Now if you are a runner, like we just saw the Olympics recently in Tokyo, we saw runners, um, what they do is they try to strip down and get rid of every weight that they don't absolutely need so they can run as fast as they possibly can. Now an encumbrance, what would an encumbrance be if you were in a race? Well it'd be anything that would slow you down, wouldn't it? You wouldn't want to go run a race in army boots, right? Because you'd lose. <laughs> They're too heavy. So you want to get those off and get some really light, good sneakers on that you can run fast in. So anything that's weighing you down, get rid of it so that you can finish the race. You can, you can do as well as you possibly can in, in the race. 
And every one of us is running a race. We call it the Christian life. We've got sins, and of course we need to get rid of the sin in our life. But even the encumbrances that are keeping us from the excellent things, the best things in our Christian life. If you find that something is stripping you so that you're not pursuing the excellent and best things, that's an encumbrance that we need to lay aside as well. So, all discernment. Abounding love, real knowledge, all discernment to choose the most excellent things in the Christian life. Fourthly, he prays for sincerity. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Well, let's just camp out on this first one, sincere. What does he mean when he talks about being sincere? Paul wanted them to possess all discernment so that they would be able to make excellent choices and he wanted them to make excellent choices so that they would be sincere until the day of Christ. Now there's a couple of passages that will help us understand what Paul was meaning when he talked about being sincere. One of them is 2 Corinthians 2.17. This is what he writes there. For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ and the sight of God. Now what's Paul saying? He's saying that he and his team were not like many others. There are many others that were peddling the word of God. And he said, we don't peddle the word of God. We speak from God and we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We're not peddling it. Now what does it mean to peddle something? It means to sell it, right? You, you see the, the guy with the little um, cart that he moves along the road and he's got ice cream and stuff in it. He's peddling his wares. And he's saying there are many people out there that peddle the word of God. I don't know exactly how they were doing it, but maybe they were charging for their preaching. Or I don't, I'm not really sure how they peddled it, but the point of that is that they had mixed motives. Maybe part of their motivation was they wanted to help people with the word of God, but part of it is they wanted profit to accrue to themselves. They were peddling it. <laughs> they, they wanted to increase in, in wealth through the word of God in some way. So, Paul is saying to be sincere is not to peddle something. It's not to have mixed motives for what you do. It's to have pure motives in what you do. To have unmixed motives. Paul says we don't have mixed motives like those who peddle the word of God. It's different. And then the other passage that may help us here to understand sincerity is 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Paul says there, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He links sincerity to unleavened bread. He says that the Corinthians were like a loaf of unleavened bread, Christ was the lamb, the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for their sins, and they were like a loaf of unleavened bread. Now, leaven in the scripture is often associated with sin. Here, Paul links it with malice and wickedness, evil. And he says to them, let's celebrate the feast, not with leaven, 
like malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So sincerity is like unleavened bread that's not mixed with malice or wickedness, but is free from evil. So I, again, I believe it's talking about purity of motive. Being unleavened, being unmixed with evil, having that, that pure motivation. So if that's true, then we need to ask ourselves, am I sincere? And I, will I remain sincere until the day of Christ? What, what's my motivation like? Is it mixed? Or is it pure? Think about when you serve others. What's your motivation when you serve? Let's say you're helping with the kids on a Sunday morning. Or maybe you come early to set up chairs. Or maybe someone in the fellowship is sick and you're taking them a meal. You're, you're sacrificially serving somebody else. What's going through your mind and your heart? Why are you doing what you're doing? If it's because, well, if I do this, then I think I'm going to win that person's approval. Or the church is going to look at me and think of what a spiritual person, what a loving person that is. You have some mixed motives there. But if you're thinking, Lord, I just want to do this because this will bring you pleasure and this will bring you honor, that's, that's an unmixed motive and that's sincere your motives are pure to think of God and bringing Him glory. And that's what the Lord wants from our lives. Or what about when you sing and worship here on Sunday morning and you're zealous and you're loud and you sing joyfully? Are you doing that with sincere motives? It's possible for us to do things in a public setting because we want to attract attention to ourselves and we want people to think of us highly. Remember, Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 6. Don't do your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward by your Father who is in heaven. We have to... It, sin is so insidious in the life of a Christian. And our motivations... Sometimes we don't even know what the motivation are, are, is ourself, right? I struggle with that, thinking, what really was my motivation? I have to pray about it and ask, have to ask the Lord to show me what, what is motivating me. Because I want it to be pure. And I want to get the impurity out of my life. So he prays that they would be sincere. Pure motivation for their service, their worship, all that they do in the cause of Christ. And then number five, he prays for them to be blameless. Not only sincere, but blameless until the day of Christ. Now we could get the wrong impression when I read the word blameless, I think, wow, these people were so holy that there was nothing that they could be blamed for. Sinless. Was Paul praying that they would be sinless until Jesus came back? And that's, that's really not what he was praying. Because the word blameless literally means not causing offense or stumbling. He wanted them to not cause offense or stumble others in their Christian life. And this is something that Paul wrote about quite often. In 1 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And then in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 8, he writes, Therefore if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. 
And then in Rome, or I'm excuse me, 1 Corinthians 10:32, he wrote, "Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God." Again and again, Paul wrote to them and saying, "Don't stumble others. Don't cause offense in the lives of other people." And we remember Jesus's sobering words in Matthew 18, verse 6, "Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes." So Jesus was very clear. You don't want to stumble one of these little ones. And Paul says, "We are to be sincere and blameless or not causing offense until the day of Christ." Now, Paul had mentioned that same phrase in verse 6. I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What he means is that until Jesus comes back, until either you die or Christ returns, I want you to be sincere and blameless, not causing offense or stumbling others. So let me ask you this. Is your life marked by blamelessness in the sense that you're striving not to cause another brother to stumble or to give offense? Are you willing to lay down your own personal liberties, whether that means drinking a glass of wine, eating meat, uh, insisting on worshiping one day over another? I'm giving all these from Romans 14. Those are the examples Paul gives there, but whatever your personal Christian liberty is, are you willing just to set that aside because you love your brother more than you want to indulge in that liberty? And that's where a self-sacrificial determination to do another good comes in, right? We're willing to lay down our rights. Paul even gave himself as an example of one who laid down his right. He said, "Doesn't Paul uh Peter, doesn't he have a right to take along a believing wife and the other apostles?" He laid down his right to receive um money and instead Paul worked as a tent maker to provide for his needs so he'd cause no offense when he preached the gospel. He gives examples from his own life of how he was willing to lay down his liberty for the benefit of the church. And so let's pursue blamelessness. Let's pursue this striving that we not stumble others. a little one who believes in Christ. And then finally, Paul prays for fruit that they would manifest fruit. He says in verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now let's take that phrase by phrase. Having been filled. What kind of verb is that? It's passive. A passive verb means that you are not doing the acting, you're being acted upon. In other words, we're not filling ourselves with fruit. We're having been filled means someone else is filling you with fruit. And of course, God is the one that fills us with fruit. Jesus taught that in John 15. Jesus said, "Abide in me, and I in you." as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine so neither can you unless you abide in me i am the vine you are the branches he who abides in me and i in him he bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing 
So this fruit does not have its source in you or me. It has its source in God. Now we bear the fruit, yes, but the source of that fruit comes by the power of God in our lives. Now, he says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. So what does the fruit look like? It looks like righteous living. It looks like righteous deeds. It looks like good works. It looks like holy living. It's the fruit of righteousness. And Paul says this fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. So that tells me that the only way that I can bear the fruit of a righteous life is if Jesus Christ who lives in me manifests himself through me. He's the righteous one. And Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in you also, the hope of glory. If he dwells within you, then his righteous life can be manifested through yours. So we need to be careful that we never make the mistake that any righteous deeds that come forth from our life have their source in me. Apart from him, I can do nothing. They come from him. And then Paul says, to the glory and praise of God. When the fruit of righteousness is produced in our lives, God receives glory and praise. Jesus said in John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So God is glorified when we bear much fruit. And that's exactly what Paul says here. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Do you remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now that seems a little backwards. We, th we would think Jesus would say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you because they're seeing your good works. But no, in the Christian life, if we're truly doing these good works by the power of the Holy Spirit, they tend to, to double back and shed, and shed the floodlight back on God and His glory. And people are enamored with the power of God, not you, personally. And if you're trying to attract all of the attention and the adulation to yourself, something's wrong there. We're like the moon. We reflect the sun. We're not the source. So it gives God glory and praise when we produce good fruit. So here's what Paul is praying for the Philippians. Love, knowledge, discernment, sincerity, blamelessness, and fruit. And the thing that came to me as I was considering that is, that's, this is the way the Apostle Paul prayed. This is what he prayed for. Is that the way I pray? And is that what I pray for my brothers and sisters? And I had to think, well, not usually. I really don't think to pray like this. It would be really good if we would start to pray like Paul prayed. When you think about how Christians pray, or I shouldn't say how, but what they pray for, usually it has to do with protection from some kind of physical danger, like maybe traveling mercies on the road, or if someone uh, is sick, that they would get better and have health. Usually it has to do with the physical and the material. Paul here, there, there's not one word in his whole prayer about the physical or the material. It was all spiritual. The knowledge of God, love for the brethren, discerning, spiritual discernment. 
sincerity, unmixed motives, not offending the brethren, giving God glory and praise by producing fruit. All of this is spiritual that he's, he's praying for them about. So I want to encourage you this week as you go to pray, and I hope that you do pray for others within the body during the week. When you think about them, pray for spiritual growth, growth in godliness, growth in the knowledge of God. Pray that their love would abound more and more. Pray that they would be sincere and not be having these, this 50-50 pull when they think about doing something good and they're motivated by this and they're motivated by that. But they could just do it unto the glory of God and that would be enough for them. Pray that they would be willing to lay down their liberty in order to, to give and to pour into the life of somebody else for their blessing. Pray that they would produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Abounding fruit. And so that's my challenge for you. Number one, pray for each other. We emphasized that last week. Paul was always praying for the Philippians. Let's be in prayer for each other. But when you pray, pray like Paul did. Now it's not wrong to pray for the physical and the material. I don't want to give that impression. It's okay. But why don't we emphasize the spiritual a little bit more than we do? Let's think about godliness and spirituality and growth and the disciplines of the Christian life and the fruit of the Spirit. And let's make that a major content and a major emphasis when we pray for each other. And then secondly, are the things that Paul prayed for the Philippians, are they the things that you want in your life? Do you want your own love to abound more and more? Do you want knowledge of God? Do you want discernment to choose and approve the excellent things in your life? Do you want to be sincere? Do you want to be blameless? Do you want to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit? I believe those are the things that are of inestimable value in life. There's nothing more valuable, no more precious than those things. And so let's seek those things, brothers and sisters. We can pray for others that they would manifest them. Pray, pray for yourself in the same way, that you would, you would grow in these graces of God. So may God help us to pursue the things that are His will for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you remind us that when we pray for one another, that we would pray like Paul did and pray for the things that are of inestimable value, that we would pray for, for those that we know that they would grow in the knowledge of God and in love and sincerity and blamelessness and discernment and fruit. Put it on our heart, Lord. Help us to remember when we go to pray that these are the things that are most important. And Lord, we pray that you would do those those things in our life as well. We want, Lord, to abound in fruit so that our God would receive glory and praise as people see our good works that would glorify our Father who's in heaven. So we do ask for this, Lord. May it be so. May we see you doing it in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.